Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Hugo Lane, and today I'll be speaking with William Risch about his book, The Ukrainian West, Culture and the Fate of Empire in Soviet Lviv, which is published by Harvard Ukrainian Press. It is a topic particularly dear to my heart, as my own work centers on Lviv as well, but when it was under Austrian rule. Hello, Bill. How are you doing today? Very good. Fine. Thank you. Well, it's good to have you on. You know, you've just written this wonderful book, The Ukrainian West, about uh, Ukraine, Western Ukraine under Soviet rule up to the, into the 1960s and 70s. And I'd like to uh, talk to you more about all the interesting things you found out. And I guess the first thing I want to find out, although uh, for our readers and listeners, is to find out more about how you uh, got interested in uh, in. Eastern Europe, and then more specifically Ukraine and the Soviet Union. Thank you very much, Hugo. My interest in Eastern Europe uh, actually goes back many years. It goes back to when I was in high school. My father, I knew, was from Riga, Latvia. We knew nothing about his parents or really much of his family history, and so I was always drawn to Eastern Europe in one way or another. And my father, in fact, did remember living in what is now Poznan, Poland, at, uh, during World War II. And when I found my dad's biological mother in England while I was on an overseas study trip to, uh, to Cambridge, England, that's when I found out that my family, in fact, was connected with, uh, with Russia, with Soviet Russia. My grandmother was born there in 1918. And then the family went to Latvia in 1920 and subsequently fled westward in 1939 as uh, repatriates to Germany, so-called repatriates. So I was always, in that respect, fascinated by Eastern Europe and Russia. My relations with Russia were adversarial because my family, in its ignorance of what had happened to the family, assumed that my father's parents were killed by the Russians during World War II. And my father talked about how they kept fleeing westward to West Germany, what is now what was later West Germany, because of their fear of the Russians. In high school, in high school, I had an AP English class, and I think that that class turned me more in the direction of Russia and its culture. Uh, there was a novel by Dostoevsky, Crime and Punishment, on the reading list, and that gave me the first sense that perhaps this is a place worthy of study, a people worthy of study. Well, soon came the decline of communism in 1989, along with my discovery of who my grandmother was, and I became interested in how the Soviet Union was developing, why there was all this interest in nationalism, and... When it comes to Ukraine, when I was an undergraduate, I noticed at the library a fresh edition of um, a book in Ukrainian history. Um, Oris Subtelny's textbook on Ukrainian history had just come out, 
in, I believe, 1990, or at least it was there in, in the summer of 1990 at our library. And I became very fascinated with this book. I, I read it and, and, and wanted to know much more about uh, national identities and how they're shaped and how cultural politics can become so revolutionary, so lethal. That was the one thing that really fascinated me about Orison Telling's book, the notion that nations are historical, but ideas about them can really change the world. And so I became interested in Ukraine. I went into graduate school in 1991 at Ohio State University, following my undergraduate degree at Hiram College, which was in Northeast Ohio. And there, I was a little bit ambivalent about where to go. I was interested in Russian culture, interested in Dostoevsky, interested in the Bolsheviks and their leaders, but I didn't know really what to do with that. Well, my interest in Ukraine came together as a research agenda, I would say. In 1991, December, the last day of our graduate seminar in Russian history, taught by Dr. Alan Wildman. And in that class, uh, I told the other students about how the Soviet Union had just come apart. They had just signed the agreement at Bielovezhia, dissolving the Soviet Union. Uh, Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus had done that. Leaders of those republics had. And one of our students of Russian descent, he said, well, forgive me if I'm biased, but I always thought that Kiev was our city. And so I was immediately drawn to Ukrainian history. Why was it not a part of Russia? Why did not Kiev become part of, of a Russian nation? And so I decided, after finishing my MA degree in 1994, to learn the Ukrainian language and to proceed in a field that would involve Ukrainian history. And thus, I became interested in Ukrainian history, and then I was drawn to the western borderlands in particular, because there again, I saw something that was going on with the uh, Baltic republics where my family had been from. Republics that considered Soviet rule alien, and thus needed to be uh, done away with in 1989-1991. And so I thought about looking at Western Ukraine and to see how it was different from other parts of Ukraine, to see how possibly Ukraine's independence movement that achieved independence in 1991 was due to events from Lviv and Western Ukraine in general. And thus I became interested in the city of Lviv. Well, it's a, a lot there, uh, because, and particularly since really, I mean, in some ways, obviously, Lviv you know, definitely fits into the model you're talking about of the, of the Baltics on a, on a certain level, but at the same time, your original question about why uh, Ukraine is not uh, Russia or why you people in Kiev are not, uh, it would have ta- could easily have taken on quite a different attack. Ta- uh, um, Lviv is a fascinating city, uh, and I will, full disclosure for those of you who listen to this and don't know what I do, I have written also about a lot about Lviv myself. Um, so, and one other disclosure I'll make up front, that um, my wife is cited in this book. She was an actress in Ukraine during the time that um, uh, Bill has written about, and so it, it is then there. Just a short bit, so I don't think it affects my uh, judgment too much. Uh, 
Why don't we start then and talk about the uh, Soviet encounter with Western Ukraine? How is it different, uh, and how is it similar, perhaps, to other encounters with other uh, sort of extreme parts of the what the Russians have called the near abroad? One thing that I think that the Soviets had to deal with was. Um, a culture influenced by the bourgeois world. If you look at uh, Ukraine's, um, the, 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 the Ukrainian intelligentsia in Lviv at the time, as small as it was, it was influenced by modernist trends in literature, music, and art. So in that sense, the, um, the decadent bourgeois world, they had to confront directly in terms of culture in that respect. But secondly, we're talking about a region influenced by nationalism, a Ukrainian nationalism that was shaped by confrontation with other nationalisms in Central Europe, namely Polish nationalism, but also Zionism. And thus, uh, we're dealing with a kind of national movement that um, lent itself to the uh, uh, ideas of the extreme right. For example, if we look at the OUN, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, which emerged in 1929, you had a movement that acquired some popularity in Western Ukraine, especially amongst the young people, that emphasized integral nationalism, the cult of the leader, the notion of um, the community, rather than the individual becoming of greater importance, and so on. So, uh, and also a movement inspired by the the fascism of Mussolini and um, Adolf Hitler, you could say. I just want to interrupt. Could you just clarify what you mean by integral nationalism for those people who are not familiar with that term? Uh, Integral nationalism is... Uh, a view of the nation and its history where um, mobilizing the nation to achieve its independence, to achieve its uh, further development in the world, involves a strong leader, one who can save the nation, unite the nation, one could also say purify the nation. In that respect, we're looking at a very undemocratic movement in that respect, one that focuses on one political party and one leader. In that sense, integral nationalism is a type of fascism, as I would argue. Okay. And uh, what's his understanding of the nation historically? Is it a recognition of a community that's a sort of civic community? How do they understand that? Uh, they understand uh, the nation to be uh, one that is based on ethnicity, primarily. Okay. One that is based on ethnicity. Um, and so, to that degree, uh, Ukrainian integral nationalism did acquire an intolerance of Poles and Jews, and thus the history of the ON in the late 1930s uh, involved uh, um, uh, a need to combat the influence of other ethnic groups in uh, Eastern Galicia at the time. 
Okay, and that gets to my next question, which is a, a, another part of the background to this Soviet encounter. Um, the role of Poland and Galicia, the, the history that's brought from that uh, to the Ukrainian, or this Western Ukrainian context, as the Soviets come in. Uh, yeah, and, and your question is? Well, I'm just asking you to talk more about the uh, Russian, you know, what, what about the influences of Poland and Galicia? You know, how do, could you talk about that shaping? I mean, I think you've touched a little bit already about Polish nationalism, but talk a little bit more about that side of the influence, the bourgeois culture, and how, uh, you know, this other history has shaped, you know, and, and helped cr contribute to that of that integral Ukrainian nationalist dream that has emerged in the 30s? Well, uh, if you look at interwar Polish nationalism um, with Roman Domowski and the, the, the National Democrats, this is a nationalism that was based on ethnicity, largely, and that was very intolerant of, of, of Poland's national minorities. Thus, we have, for example, uh, um, quotas placed on the number of Jews who could attend university in Lviv, quotas placed on the number of Ukrainians who could attend university in Lviv at the time. And so this was a, a kind of nationalism that really threatened the Polish, uh, I'm sorry, the Ukrainian national identity in Eastern Galicia. And that sense of being threatened, I would argue, uh, encouraged encouraged this kind of nationalism that was intolerant toward uh, Poles and Jews. Okay. And, and in terms of culture, I would just say broadly, I mean, in terms of culture, we're, we're dealing with a community of writers and artists and musicians that were influenced uh, by trends in modernism, uh, for example, the works of Nikola Kolesa. He was a, a modernist, really, as a, you could characterize his, his compositions in that way before 1939. And uh, so we're dealing with a view of culture that was more uh, tolerant of the idea of uh, art for art itself. Uh, a kind of uh, a view on culture that did depart from views on culture that were being um, espoused by the Soviet leadership in the Soviet Union in the 1930s, where culture was to serve a higher political goal. Thus, we see, you know, for example, with socialist realism. All right, socialist realism had no ground in, in Eastern Galicia. All right, there were, there were many other cultural influences there, and thus, um, when it comes to the Soviet leadership, as they enter into as they enter um, Galicia and, and incorporate it into Western Ukraine, they have to deal with that cultural influence that says that art is for art itself. Although there were other trends, too, um, suggesting that art is to serve the nation, so it was more complex, certainly, but these apolitical trends in art, literature, and music did disturb Soviet leaders as well. Okay, and don't, but don't you think I mean, just the fact you have these Ukrainians who have, regardless of their, the depth of their national feeling and such and commitment to the nation, 
the the fact that they've grown up in a in the second Polish Republic, um, that education is going to shape the way and and their influences even after the Soviets come in. I'm thinking of the fact that uh, I mean you mention in the book the influence of Polish radio and such things, and and you notice a difference even between um, pre. 56 Polish radio. I mean, are they? Is it only after 56 that they listen, or uh, to start listening to Polish radio, or is it from the beginning? And how does this? How does this create this context that uh, creates your Western Ukraine that you know, emerges at the end of the Soviet period? Well, as far as I can tell, when it comes to the radio, that became more appealing to the Vivians and to others in Western Ukraine from 1956 on, because that's where you have uh, the Polish October, where, uh, thanks to uh, Władysław Gomułka taking power in Poland, um, you see the beginnings of de-Stalinization in that republic, and de-Stalinization meant a more liberal view on culture, uh, and thus, um, uh, Polish radio thus becomes more appealing. It offers the kind of music, jazz music, light music, not available in the Soviet Union, at least at that time. And so I would say, uh, yeah, uh, Polish radio becomes appealing as a medium from 1956 onward rather than before. Because really what we're looking at in Poland in the Stalinist period is, you know, common trends elsewhere in the Soviet bloc, where the rules of socialist realism were rigorously enforced, where you had great anxieties about young people admiring the West. You saw it in, in Poland with the Bikinyarze, the those who, who in their fashion, uh, showed an admiration for, for America with, you know, the supposedly the, the colored ties featuring the, the, the bikini atolls on them. Okay. So, Right, no, I, I, that's more or less what I thought, but, you know, but again, the, the, there was, I think you also mentioned the books, though, in people's libraries, lots of Polish right. books that remain in the, in people's libraries and sort of are holding things over maybe until 1956. Now, oh, yes. uh, before 1956, I mean, there were plenty of, 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 of books in Polish that became an, an alternative way of looking at, at literature. Uh, for example, you know, there were trans, Translations. I know of one case where there was a Polish translation of Dostoevsky that one art instructor at Lviv's Art Institute read when he was growing up in the early 50s, late 40s. And that uh, Polish translation was more available than the Russian original. And uh, you did have, you know, uh, Polish translations of Western works that were available before the Russian translations were pre-1956. Okay, and this must have been a threat. I mean, what happens, if I understand correctly, is that the... Well, of course, there's a brief period that Jan Gross has written about in his book, which you don't touch on, the uh, 3941 occupation of Lviv. Yeah. Um, but, you know, these, these concerns, this must have been a big deal for the Soviets who come out to now stake permanently for the Soviet Union, Western Ukraine, as a as part of the brother of so of uh, brotherhood of Slavic peoples, and uh, how do they react to this to this environment? 
they meaning the, the, the Soviets, the right? The Soviets who come, who come in after the war. Well, I mean, there is this, this shift because the war does a lot of things. I mean, the first Soviet occupation, 1939 to 1941, this is where you see uh, the suppression of Ukrainian nationalism, so-called, in Western Ukraine, bourgeois nationalism, I should say, and that involved uh, uh, many educated Ukrainians who may not have been very political, and the execution of thousands of Ukrainians in uh, prisons in Lviv and other cities in 1941 during the Soviet retreat uh, as the Nazis invaded. Then, of course, you have collaboration with the Nazis during a war, and thus when the Soviets who return in 1944, they have to deal with that legacy of collaboration. And, of course, collaboration is a very complicated subject, all right, where some people with no choice had to side with Germany or saw Germany as a lesser of two evils before some of the greater atrocities happened in Western Ukraine. So, I mean, they had to deal with that. The Soviets had to deal with this legacy of, of, of recent legacy of um, uh, Ukraine's collaboration with the Nazis. They had, to, they had to deal with the violence between Poles and Ukrainians uh, in the closing uh, months of World War II and shortly thereafter. And so, um, really, um, they're... They're distrustful of the Western Ukrainians in that respect. These post-war Western Ukrainians who were not deported to Poland. You, you know that uh, in 1940, from 1946, uh, 1947, actually, 1946 to 1947, uh, we see the, the deportation of Lviv's Polish population. Right. Okay. So, they so they're starting, they're, they're, they're dealing with a society that's been ravaged by war, and they're also dealing with a society that has sided with an enemy that has left very bitter, bitter memories for Soviets. As well as bitter memories of a brief Soviet rule on top of that. Yeah. So it's an interesting conflict. And now, as we progress and getting uh, back to my question earlier, actually, of taking us from that, you know, they've they spent, by 1956, they've been there for roughly a decade. The thaw is happening. Uh, if we can imagine that the local population is clearly you know, engaged with what's going on in Poland, or at least aware of what's going on in the broader world, how are the Russians who sort of made Lviv their home feeling about this? Uh, or the Ukrainians who've come in from the east? Uh, do they adapt to a, a kind of Western Ukrainian perspective, or do they continue a more orthodox view? Well, the, those um, Ukrainians from pre-1939 Ukraine, the so-called Eastern Ukrainians, and then uh, the uh, ethnic Russians and other ethnic groups from other parts of the Soviet Union who came after 1944, you know, when so the, the Soviets liberate uh, Lviv from the Nazis. 
these people, some of them, you know, they find this as a, as a temporary stay, and they want to go to places like Moscow, all right? They want to go where all the action is. They don't want to be out in the provinces. On the other hand, there are others that become very much charmed by the city life in Lviv. Their apartments that they received in the central districts uh, seem to be the European apartments that are worth making their homes in. Uh, I would say that these others from outside Western Ukraine, they do find the city very charming. They become interested in Polish media. They interact with the Pol Polish tourists and other visitors from Poland that come there um, increasingly after 1956. But they remain their own in their own communities to some degree. Granted, the Eastern Ukrainians, that's a more complex group because you do have these, you know, these common ties to Ukrainianization of, of the interwar period that affected Soviet Ukraine. And many, in fact, become Ukrainian speakers and have close friends amongst Western Ukrainians. And, you know, their children who are born in the city, they become um, very much, you know, uh, a part of the Ukrainian community of Lviv. On the other hand, I am sort of drawn to this oral interview that I mentioned in, in my book where um, there's this well, today she's a sociologist, Natalia Chernish, who remembered her university days in late 1960s Lviv. And she talked about how the Ukrainians, the Eastern Ukrainians, and she was amongst them, and the Western Ukrainians at the dorms, they had a great time together. They sang songs, they talked about history. The Western Ukrainians looked on them with, with pity that they didn't know everything about uh, Ukrainian history, including the Stalinist terror and the Ukrainian famine of 1932 to 33. But she said there was still a sense of distance, distancia. Mm -hmm. And granted, I think that the Ukrainian community, Eastern Ukrainians and Western Ukrainians, were coming together, especially amongst those who were born after World War II, like Natalia Chernish. But it is interesting that there still were these differences between the two. Regarding the Russians, all right the ethnic Russians and other ethnic groups from outside Western Ukraine who came there after World War II, those groups, I would say there is still great distance between them and uh, Western Ukrainians. Um, you really see, for example, artistic circles that were developing separately. The classic example for me really is in the early 1960s, late 1950s, where you have the future dissidents, Bogdan and Mikhail Horin, and their circle of friends, and they seem to have no contact with the, um, the uh, writer Lydia, Yevgenia Ginsburg, sorry, Yevgenia Ginsburg, who wrote Journey into the Whirlwind. She actually lived in Lviv at that time, and they had no contact with her. So really, you had people who um, you know, become part of this dissident movement in the Soviet Union from different ethnic backgrounds, and they don't interact. So you do see this kind of distance that's there between ethnic groups in Lviv, despite certain commonalities and admiration for uh, 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 Polish culture, uh, an interest in what was going on over there in Poland, 
and interest in Polish media and, and getting access to it and uh, a love for the city. One of the things is speaking of that contact of Pol- with with Polish culture and uh, newspaper news and stuff. What well, you mentioned that the Lvivians and I, I think you're talking about the Ukrainians, but I suspect it holds for them all. None of them seem to have necessarily see, translated this, uh, you know, the big events of '68 or '70 or eight, uh, or 1980 as calls to action themselves to uh, set to do something similar. Um, was that, uh, you know, was that a pragmatic decision, or uh, was it simply that it didn't seem necessary, or what was, what was, what, what do you see behind that? I think it was partly pragmatism, uh, because, um, well, the fear of being expelled from the Komsomols, the Communist Youth League, or the university, or from or being dismissed from one's job was a real danger. Uh, in that respect, they became good Soviet citizens. They knew what to say in public and what not to say. Uh, and this happened in other parts of the Western borderlands, I would argue. For example, you do see some unrest in Lithuania in 1972 surrounding the self-immolation of Roman Kalantis, or you see some protests in Tartu in 1968, I believe it was. Um, But even there, those protests tended to be about um, youth interests, freedom for the hippies, or, or making fun of university administrators and so on, or party committee members. So I would say that, yes, there was perhaps a certain disciplining that had succeeded on the western borderlands, including Lviv, which made the reception of um, events in Poland and Czechoslovakia in 1968 problematic. Uh, On the other hand, I would say that there was less optimism by the time we get to 1968. if you look at, for example, the people like Bogdan and Mikhailo Horin, those who came of age at the university or in, in jobs in the late 1950s, early 1960s, I would say that they, they, they shared a certain optimism of the law that Soviet socialism could be improved, and thus they protested when uh, violations of socialist legality happened, when it looked like there would be a return to the era of the cult of personality, Joseph Stalin's cult of personality. But um, I would also say you, you need to consider uh, Lviv itself looking at a city where there is an intelligentsia being rebuilt after the war. You know, so many uh, of the Ukrainian intelligentsia had gone abroad or had, had died in the war. Uh, Lviv had never really been uh, dominated by Ukrainian culture until after World War II. So in many respects, you don't even really have the cultural, the, the, the kind of cultural and intellectual community that could foster uh, the kind of unrest that you see in Poland, for instance. They're just getting on their feet, you could say, organizing. And then by 1989, you know, that's where you have a local intelligentsia that's, um, that's big enough and organized enough. Uh, to really do something. So in some ways, I, I think that this um, 
this uh, more subdued response to events in Poland, Czechoslovakia are due to those factors. Although I do sort of wonder, on the back of my mind, I haven't really resolved this in the book, perhaps, uh, and I would like to resolve this in the future. I think that the antagonism with, between Poles and Ukrainians did not completely go away. You know, the violence between Poles and Ukrainians during World War II, as seen in the neighboring province of Bohemia, that involved the deaths of 48,000 to 60,000 Poles in 1943, that still had, I think, lasting effects. The younger generations growing up after World War II, they admired what was going on in Poland. They loved Czeslav Neiman, the, the jazz rock musician. They were interested in, in what the newspapers were saying about things going on in the rest of the world. But on the other hand, uh, and I don't mention this in, the, in my book, but I mean, this guy, uh, Ilko Lemko, uh, an amateur rock musician in the late 1970s, uh, later involved in radio and TV production in Lviv, he talks about the Poles coming to Lviv as tourists and their involvement in the black market trade. And he compares them to, uh, in his memoirs, he says that they were like the... Um, the Europeans who came to the Americas and offered the Aborigines fancy baubles. So in that respect, I sort of wonder, you know, did there really end this resentment of the Poles as somehow being over the Ukrainians? It certainly seems uh, like, likely, and you know more about that period than I do, uh, but I certainly know that when I was in Ukraine in the early 90s, in uh, the bitterness was rife, and even uh, even the people who were perhaps not themselves prone to it, yeah, uh, seemed to feel it in the eyes of Poles who saw them, as it were. You know, that they, if they went to Poland, they felt nervous. Yeah, um, and so I think that certainly had something to do with that. I, but I also wonder. And I think this is one of the messages of your book. Maybe it's simply because when I read your book, I see a, it's a common storyline with what I write about with uh, the Austrians coming in and reshaping Galicia in, in their own image. Is that, to a certain extent, the Soviets' project succeeds. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you mentioned your dissidents. Um, the Horan brothers, uh, and you know later Chonaville. I mean, these are people who, in a sense, they're dis being dissidents. Part of the reason they're able to be dissidents is that they kind of believe the Soviet system. Um, they get burned by it, and I, you know, obviously by the end they are by no means supporters of the Soviet system, but. Their initial building, you know, they are they come out and they emerge this, as kind of this new Galician Ukraine, and I, you know, and it, it, I find it ironic that they seem to, that the Mo the Moscow people are more concerned about Lvivians uh, emulating what's going on in Prague or Warsaw. Uh, then is actually on the ground, rather like the you see the uh, among the Habsburg officials in the 1830s, absolutely obsessed with the Poles not wanting to be Austrian. If you look, 
all sorts of evidence would look at it rationally tells you quite otherwise. And you, well, yes, and actually, I mean, this is what's so fascinating about this city because it becomes this anti-Soviet nationalist city, but it's a result, really, of Soviet policies. On the other hand, what some of those policies had led to was, for example, you know, this constant campaign against uh, the Ukrainian bourgeois nationalists. That would include the OUN and the UPA, the Ukrainian Insurgent Army, in Soviet literature, in the media, led to a stereotype about Western Ukraine being Banderite. And this is where, for example, in my book, I talk about poor Olga, Olga, or, or I'm sorry, Oresta, that's right. Oresta, who was a great model pioneer and Komsomol in the 1970s, she was born in 1958 in, in the Lviv region. And, you know, she identified so much with the values of those organizations. But when she goes to a pioneer camp in the Kiev region, uh, in the, I would imagine, mid 19, early 1970s, uh, she was called uh, uh, Bandarivka because she was the only uh, Ukrainian speaker and she was from Lviv. And so, you know, this sense of being different was there in her childhood. And for many uh, in Lviv who were natives of Western Ukraine, they did feel different. And I think that feeling of difference, that they were Banderites, it was joked about. And at the time, it was something that caused great offense. But I think that that general stereotype contributed a great deal to this later antagonism with the Soviet system that becomes popular amongst the Vivians in 1989 and leads to the formation of a non-communist government in Lviv in 1990, and where all of the deputies from the Lviv region who are elected in the, in the 1990 uh, Supreme Soviet elections for, for Soviet Ukraine, all of those deputies vote for independence on um, August the 24th, 1991. So, I mean, that's why I think uh, the Soviet policy was successful. I mean, in some ways, too, you know, um, the, the Soviets tried to pr promote a different vision of what it meant to be Ukrainian in Lviv and Western Ukraine. And to that extent, you know, they did sort of, they did succeed at, at, at keeping this part of the empire under its control. Uh, first of all, you have to consider the fact that uh, the UPA, the Ukrainian Insurgent Army, its violence, uh, the violence that it engaged in in uh, the latter uh, years of World War II and then after that divided Western Ukrainian society because the majority of victims were local Ukrainians in fact. So the Soviets could profit from that and they did. The other thing was, you know, uh, the Soviets did try to promote what was progressive in Western Ukrainian history. The Western Ukrainian Communist Party, the KPZU, uh, writers who were of a 
communist uh, inclinations like Yaroslav Holand, but also um, there were others, for example, Stefan Melnychuk, who I feature in my book. He was a siege rifleman in the Austrian Times, so he was a part of that legacy of the siege rifleman who uh, produced the Western Ukrainian People's Republic in 1918-1919, and that republic was really um, at odds with the with the Soviet Union um, at one point. The legacy of that 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 republic was at odds with 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 with, with, with the Soviet leadership. Uh, and this Melnychuk, he leaves the siege rifleman and goes over to the Reds and becomes a Red rifleman. He becomes um, a, a part of the communist movement and in, in Soviet Ukraine is executed by the Poles in 1922 for um, being involved in an, an insurrection against Polish rule, an insurrection inspired by uh, the communists there. And so you do see, you know, uh, a lot of people that um, are, are portrayed as, you know, good Western Ukrainians, you could say that, who are for the Soviet Union, for friendship with the Russian people. And that leads me to a third point, is that when we look at the Ukrainian cultural scene in Lviv, uh, Stanislav Ludkevich, a Ukrainian composer from um, Galicia, Western Ukraine, uh, his works are portrayed as those that foster Ukrainian-Russian friendship in um, late Soviet Lviv, uh, post-war Soviet Lviv. But for example, um, Lukevich is one of these examples of Western Ukrainians who were ambivalent towards the Soviet project. One uh, anecdote he used to tell was, Soviet rule came and there was nothing we could do about it. Just like with the Austrians, they came and there was nothing that we could do about it, or the Poles. They came, and there was nothing that we could do. Uh, and also, uh, Lukevich's own works, such as uh, the symphony called The Caucasus, which is based on Taras Chepchenko's poem from 1845, that poem is about, it's a protest against the Tsar's violent policies in the Caucasus Mountains region. So in that sense, it's the protest against Russian rulers and how they oppress non-Russian nationalities. So in that sense, you know, you've got somebody who's promoted as a guy that's favoring Russian-Ukraine friendship, but in many respects, he is one who's critical of the Soviet project, although very guarded in his criticisms. So you see, you know, very successful policies that help legitimate Soviet rule, but on the other hand, figures such as uh, Stanislav Lukevich, they are very ambivalent about the Soviet project. You mentioned in your book, and I'm unfortunately I didn't jot down the name of the fellow, but you know, this this attempt to find positive aspects um, of a West Ukrainian past can sometimes get people into trouble. And yeah. there's one there's one particular fellow who digs up a fellow a, a Ukrainian intellectual who would become friendly with Lenin and yes. he celebrates this and this works initially okay for him but then it, it works against him. Uh, could you talk a bit about that? Yes, um, that man's name was Volodymyr Levinsky who was uh, one of the social democrats in Galicia who yes, he was 
um, in contact with Lenin in uh, Geneva or in Switzerland, uh, and um, he was one who sort of was really inspired by what was going on with the Bolsheviks in in Imperial Russia, and this man, you know, was born and raised in Galicia. But at one point, he has a falling out with the Bolsheviks over the nationalities policy. He has a falling out, a major falling out with with uh, the 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 communists during the 1930s in regards to Ukrainianization and how they fold it up or scale it back. Uh, he's very much a critic of the uh, Ukrainian famine of 1932-33, and by the time the Soviets arrive in 1939, he's out of there. He's in actually German-occupied Poland, and he comes back to Lviv when the Germans occupy it in 1941, and he's uh, recruiting people for SS Galicia in 1943, and then eventually winds up, you know, when the Germans leave, he goes with them and goes to Vienna, where he dies, I believe, in 1950. So here's somebody, you know, and this is the problem. There were there were these um, party historians. Uh, there were these people in other social science disciplines, such as um, political economy, who portrayed this guy in the early 1960s as a popularizer of Marxist ideas in Galicia, the Ukrainian popularizer of Marxist ideas in Galicia. But they only told half the story. It was a very selective memory. They forgot all about what happened from 1939 on. Either they were trying to hide it or they were just being incompetent. I'm not sure which. And that led to problems in the early 1970s when Rivals between academics at Lviv University, I would argue, led to people digging up more about Levinsky and realizing that he wasn't the man they said he was. What's really interesting about this controversy, too, about Volodymyr Levinsky was that the first person who really promoted him as a Marxist uh, in Galicia was a man by the name of um, Valentin Malanchuk. Valentin Malanchuk went on to become the secretary in charge of ideology for the Communist Party of Ukraine by, I believe it was 1972-1973. But somehow he was not um, a victim of the campaign against the scholars who had uh, glorified or whitewashed Levinsky. Interesting. Talking about successes of or unintended successes of coal, of the uh, Soviet um, policies. Uh, one of the things that you write about is how the Soviets sought to depolonize the city uh, and its, its, its past and emphasize its Ukrainian, its historical Ukrainianness. Uh, and that seems to have been very, very successful and, of course, leads to a situation where Ukrainians today regardless of all the architectural evidence to the contrary, uh, not that we should take it away from them in any way, uh, regard Lviv as historically a Ukrainian city uh, and only Ukrainian city. Yeah. Um, 
it is a uh, it is interesting. It's sad, but I mean, it is a a, a reality uh, of 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 uh, post-Soviet Lviv that that this is accepted to be a Ukrainian city that was always Ukrainian. In my book, I, I talk about how these perceptions were were seen as as very much real. Where, for example, there's a poet by the name of Roman Lubkivsky, who, in his guide, popular guide to Lviv, well, it's sort of a, 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 a small book about Lviv, he talks about how the people who built these things were Ukrainians. And some of the motifs in the buildings, in the architecture, are Ukrainian. It's just that, you know, uh, the Pole managed to sort of uh, run this whole thing. So he sees... Uh, in fact, that this architecture is Ukrainian. Why? Because the people who actually built it, built these these chapels and so on, were Ukrainians. And lest uh, someone leap in and send me an angry email, I should say that in many ways, at least certain segments of the population are are, are combating that uh, this tendency. Right. Uh, and uh, so no, I, I, yeah, I agree. I mean that that is that is very much true. And in fact, I mean. You know, Roman Lubkiewski, he was very much involved in Ukrainian-Polish friendship during the Soviet era. So I think he understands that, too. Um, I think it's an attempt, really, though, I mean, in emphasizing the Ukrainian aspects of the early modern uh, city. I think it's an attempt to, you know, make that city their own. And I think it's uh, um, understandable. The city that they want to be their city. I, I do. So. I agree. I mean, there's just, you know, it's a it's a very tricky thing. What East European national politics over the past hundred fifty years has done to that city. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we live in an era now where uh, the, at least the the answer to the solution is to say it's a Ukrainian city on one one level or other whether we're using the name uh, rather than finding, accepting the ver the variety of names. You know, we, we all, scholars in the English language now refer to it Lviv pretty much universally, except under special circumstances. Um, and, you know, maybe there's no way around that, but that's, it's a, it's a phenomenon. It's a, how it, uh, it's grown up. Could you talk a little more specifically about some of the, Soviet efforts to depolonize the city's past? Well, yeah. Uh, for example, uh, the university, um, which had been named for Jan Kazimir, one of the Polish kings, that becomes the Ivan Franco University. The, um, the Polish Music Society, I believe it was, their building becomes the uh, a conservatory for Lviv, the State Conservatory for Lviv, and that conservatory is named for Mykola Lysenko, a, a very prominent 19th century Ukrainian uh, composer from central Ukraine. Uh, you see it in the removal of monuments. Uh, for example, Jan Sobieski, I believe, was in the center of Lviv, and that was moved to Gdansk in 1950. Um, so you see the removal of monuments. Um, another thing that I think is, you know, one example of how the city was depolonized is the Lichakiv, uh 
military memorial, the the, Lechak, the part of Lechaki Cemetery that was for uh, Polish soldiers and officers killed in the Polish-Ukrainian War of 1918 to 1919. That part of Lechaki Cemetery was completely abandoned and fell into ruin and uh, became sort of a, the place for the gathering of all sorts of so-called shady types in Lviv, including, as I mentioned, Soviet hippies by 1970. So you see the neglect of Polish culture, the, you could say the, the, the appropriating of Polish cultural institutions like universities, like uh, music societies and so on. Um, also, you know, the, 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 the Central Historical Museum, the Central Historical Museum on Market Square that had been uh, uh, a museum glorifying the Polish heritage of, of Lviv, and that was turned into a museum that glorified the Ukrainian heritage of the city. So a number of things that, 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 that lead to the city becoming Ukrainian and uh, depolonized in that respect. But also, I mean, in terms of history, if you look at the histories that were being produced um, by people like um, the scholars at the Institute of Social Sciences. They had a monograph on the history of Western Ukraine, which was called Triumph of Historic Justice, a very long title follows that, from 1968. And the Poles are really downplayed in that entire history. A few progressive Poles that were seen as friendly to Marxists, if not Marxist. But otherwise, these lands were always Ukrainian, and uh, they, the scholars in that book make uh, uh, go at great pains to show that the um, emigre Polish scholars who talked about Lviv being an inherent part of, of the, the, the Polish Commonwealth, uh, of the Polish nation, that, that, that those claims are false. So you really see, I mean, in scholarship and I would argue even in, I would also argue in literature. If you look at, for example, a trilogy called the uh, Ruchinsky Sisters by the novelist Irina Vild, um, also suggests this, this sort of um, removal of Poles from Western Ukraine's history, where you're dealing with people living in this small town of uh, Western Ukraine, we call it now Western Ukraine, but Galicia, and uh, you see the, the plight of Ukrainians and uh, their conflict with the Poles, the Poles really aren't seen as, as heroes in any part of that novel. So, I mean, it, it goes on in a number of fronts. I mean, you do see Soviet policymakers emphasizing that, that, the, that this part of, the, of, of Ukraine uh, will, will, was and always will be Ukrainian, that includes Lviv, but then you also see intellectuals themselves contributing to that, to that notion. Yeah, I mean, it, it worked both ways, sort of becomes a circular, a, a feedback loop. Yes. Where they all, you know, they all help shape this new ethnic idea of Ukraine. You know, we're getting uh, short on time, but I do want to give, give you a chance uh, to talk a little bit about the uh, the youth culture, you just mentioned the hippies, and you know you do spend a lot of time talking about the importance of youth culture. And uh, if you like to elaborate on that, I was just one thing I thought of as I was rereading the book was the generational differences between the dissidents you mentioned, like Horan and uh, and 
Schwanville on the one hand, and then uh, these later hippies who just don't, the hippies and others who seem to become kind of apolitical, even as their apolitical nature made them a target politically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do see a, a difference in generations. Those born before 1945, much more influenced by um, the recent Soviet past, Stalin's terror, the Oun and the Upa, and so on. And also the Thaw, Khrushchev's Thaw. So these are people I would see that are more politically idealistic in some ways. They, they saw perhaps that the Soviet Union could be improved to the point where Ukrainians could one day become indeed independent, uh, if not autonomous. Uh, uh, well, autonomous, if not independent. On the other hand, these later generations, you know, they're, they're removed from the Stalinist terror. They're removed from the violence of the Oun and the Upa. They're also removed from the, from, um, uh, the idealism of the law. And really, if you're looking at late 1960s, early 1970s youth, uh, those born after 1945, and then, you know, the young people who come of age in the early 1980s, uh, for them, I think politics is something um, that they best avoid, that they consider avoiding. Uh, and to that extent, if they play any role in the dissolution of the Soviet Union and these members of the last Soviet generation, as the anthropologists, so uh, I'd say your chalk called it, um, the members of this last Soviet generation will be, I think that if they were responsible for the dissolution of the Soviet Union, I think it was because they just didn't care for its future. They were interested in other things. You know, it's interesting, the way you were, you're describing it, we get to that old line, uh, the conservative uh, line by... Uh, Gene Kilpatrick, Kirkpatrick, about how, uh, you know, it's easier to deal with a um, right-wing dictatorial system because their goal is to keep people out of politics. And in a sense, what you're describing is, uh, suggests that despite appearances, the Soviet Union uh, had actually managed to create that among its youth by the by the 60s, by the 70s and 80s. Um, doesn't seem to have made the transition to uh, post-Soviet democratic and, uh, rule any easier, really, uh, but it's an interesting way to think about things. Mm-hmm. Well... You've been working hard on this book. It's been done. It's been out uh, for getting close to a year now, right? Yeah, uh, it came out in uh, June ninth, uh, June two thousand eleven. June two thousand eleven. Okay, wow. So time does fly. Uh, so you've been working on something else, I presume. Would you like to tell us about that? Yes, uh, I actually have three projects going on. So I've been very busy since two thousand eleven. I'm currently editing a collection of essays called The Socialist Beat in the Soviet Bloc, Music, Youth, Cultures, and the State. That will be coming out uh, with Lexington Books um, next year. I then have two other projects going on. The second project is called um, Secret Son, Families, uh, the State, and Violence in Russia and Eastern Europe. 
making use of the Baltics and Western Ukraine as case studies. Some of this will lead to what I call a historical novel. Other parts of this project will lead to a monograph. And then I have yet another project which is going on really simultaneously. It is called Soviet West's Popular Culture and the Fate of Late Soviet Socialism. It looks at Ukraine, particularly Western Ukraine, but also the Baltic Republics and Poland, comparing them with other Soviet Wests, more Western others, like Yugoslavia, East Germany, Hungary, Czech Republic. All right, trying to look at this question about the West. And really, it goes back to why I got started into this 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 business in the first place. Roman Borluk's book on the impact of Eastern Europe on the Soviet Union, a collection of essays that came out in 1975. It interested me as a grad as an undergraduate completing his undergraduate degree at Hiram College, and the project has become even more interesting to me as I try and deal with the reality, for example, that Lviv was so Soviet, yet so Western, that their neighbors perhaps were more Western, yet if you talk to them, it doesn't look that simple. And so there are many more fascinating projects I hope to come. Certainly sounds that way. Uh, and it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Uh, Bill Rich, the author of the book, The Ukrainian West, uh, available in your stores. And... Uh, Wish you the best on those projects, Bill. Uh, have a good day and a good Thanksgiving, since we're doing this right before Thanksgiving. And thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure to speak with you today. You have been listening to a conversation with William Rich about his book, Ukrainian West, Culture and the Fate of Soviet Lviv, published by Harvard Ukrainian Press. I'm your host, Hugo Lane, wishing you the best and inviting you to tune in again for another conversation about new books in East European studies.